honestly the promise of like taking the ethos of ethereum and like improving upon the technology right and so some of the things that i was really excited about kind of in that second come around were the so-called ethereum killers right so like cardano mm -hmm. eos iota were kind of the ones that come to mind for me which is funny because you know flash forward five six years later they're not around anymore hey there good people in crypto land welcome back to my podcast decent people i'm matt lysing your host today on the show i've got jim chang he is a co-founder at catalyst but before that he held um roles with cool titles such as project manager for experiments at ave and he was also a product manager at Ripple. Before that, he spent some time at McKinsey. Looking at his LinkedIn, you can tell that he uh, really just did not have a good time there because he talks about things like missing 20 or more birthdays of his friends and stuff while he was on travel uh, working for that uh, consultancy. So Catalyst is a bridge protocol that is trying to um, make it easier and safer for folks to move assets across different blockchains, like from Bitcoin to Ethereum or Ethereum to Cosmos or what, what have you. And so he is now founded Catalyst with some partners. Uh, they hope to go live later this year, but they're going to be doing a testnet probably over the summer. We talked about that and about some of the security issues and how the bridge technology is, is getting better and people are putting more thought into it after um, all of the enormous um, amount of money that was lost in bridge hacks in 2022. So Jim is totally on top of that. They're thinking about using native assets rather than wrapped assets, which if you know anything about this is probably a great idea. And they're talking about holding the collateral you need in several different contracts. So it's not just one big honeypot for um, hackers to come and attack. So with all that out of the way, let's get to the conversation and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Hey, Jim. Welcome to Decent People. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm great. Uh, I'm trying to stay dry here in Los Angeles. It's raining yet again. It's I like heard. the 13th uh, major storm we've had in two months or so. It's like the wettest year in like a long time. I'm from San Diego. That's like what my parents have been telling me. Yep. Yeah, I'm not complaining because we need the water. But uh, and, and I kind of like the rain in L.A. It's it's a different sort of vibe, but it is. Uh, yeah, it's pouring out there. So I'm glad to be inside warm and uh, talking to you. Yeah, happy to be on. So let's um, kind of start from the beginning. Um, you mentioned San Diego right then. Is that where are you from San Diego? Um, so I was born in Chicago. Uh, so I spent some years. Uh... As a, as a kid in, in, uh, in Chicago, and then uh, I moved out uh, to San Diego uh, kind of in my teenage years. Uh, so I went to high school there, and then I actually went back to Chicago um, for, for university. Uh, so I went to Northwestern, uh, studied math and, uh, and economics there. But uh, I feel, you know, uh, Californian. <laughs> Spent yeah. enough years there, um, kind of post-college as well. So uh, I call it home. Well, that must have blown your mind going from Chicago with the with the seasons and the winter that's famous, and then you're in San Diego in January, and you're probably going to the beach. Yeah, yeah, I remember uh, like my first year in San Diego. Um, we we went to the beach for Thanksgiving because it was like ninety something degrees, 
And that like completely blew my mind because I was super used to like being bundled up, being inside and kind of like eating uh, with family inside. And now we had like a picnic, <laughs> which yeah. was uh, pretty surreal. Yep. Yeah. One of my favorite things every year is uh, in LA, there's the Rose Bowl parade and it's always on January 1st. And 99 times out of 100, it's like a gorgeous day and it's blue skies and it's maybe like 65 degrees, 70 degrees. And, you know, this is going out to all over the country. And I just love thinking about people in Minnesota, you know, or Maine, like, like tuning into this thing and seeing what, you know, a winter's like in, in Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah. That's like during New Year's, right? Or New Year's Eve? New Year's Day. New yeah. Year's Day. Yeah. They yeah, have the yeah. Rose Bowl parade. And then um, they have the Rose Bowl game uh, after that, the football game. Um, did you, um, so why did you guys move from Chicago to San Diego? Uh, just work. My dad got a new job. Um, so he used to work at, a at a bank, um, in, uh, in Chicago and then, uh, relocated to another bank okay. <laughs> in, uh, in more, more like Orange County, LA area. Um, it but, wasn't uh, Silvergate, was it? No, 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 no. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a bit of a more established one, uh, okay. Union Bank. Okay. Um, cool. Uh, and what, what did he do for, uh, as a banker? Uh, he was a risk management person nice. <laughs> i don't know the exact uh exact term but uh he's the guy yeah. that everyone else in the bank hated right because oh, he would make them thanks. like thanked <laughs> yeah yeah okay yeah yeah, yeah. in good but, times uh, in good times they hated him in bad times they thanked him <laughs> exactly yeah but uh yeah he's he's always kind of loved uh like um data science and and kind of uh like assessing individual risk for for credit applications and stuff like that and i mean he's actually the reason why you know i know so much about um any sort of financial concept right as it pertains to personal yeah i was gonna ask you and, and if everything. that rubbed off on you yeah I, I i would i would say so um much uh i i, I probably would like not to have been the case uh you know i wanted to have be like an independent person but uh i would say my dad was definitely a really big influence on me uh in more ways than one but definitely on uh on the banking side and you know learning about the financial world and kind yeah. of getting into it yeah i hear you on that but i mean how can we get away from our parents and the influence they have on us either good or bad you know yeah. it's pretty much impossible I'm glad to hear that you have risk management like in your lineage because that's something we really need more in crypto right now, I feel. Um, and, mm -hmm. and we'll, we'll get into that. But um, uh, and so did you grow up, do you have brothers and sisters or what was the family life like? No, I was, I was an only child. Um, so a lot of attention. Um, you know, my parents are uh, Chinese immigrants. So they kind of ran a tight ship I would say with me and uh and education and extracurriculars and uh all, all other sorts of things that kind of optimize my chances at success in life so yeah my mom my, my dad and i we spent a, a lot of time together i would say yeah well that's nice um were they first generation immigrants mm -hmm. yeah yeah first generation uh they both came here uh for uh graduate school so they met undergrad uh, right. came together to graduate school and uh yeah they, they were originally in cincinnati uh and then um my mom got into a an advanced uh degree program in uh university of illinois chicago so i was born there okay cool and what did she end up doing uh she was a um like statistician for a pharmaceutical company um abvi if you know it 
uh, up in the suburbs of Chicago. Um, So, uh, yeah, you know, just both parents are just math people, numbers people (laughs) through and through. Yeah. So it sounds like they ran a pretty tight ship. Did you, um, what were you like as a kid? Were you doing other stuff? Were you playing sports or um, in the symphony or anything like that? Yeah, I, I, I did a lot of things. Uh, at least I thought it was a lot at the time, but uh, I played three instruments. Oh, wow. Um, Which ones? So I played piano, um, violin, and um, the clarinet. All right. Uh, so I was in band and orchestra at the same time which was pretty pretty intense you're like um you're like both of my sons combined like my one son plays piano the other plays violin but um we don't have anybody on clarinet so we'll have to give you a call (laughs) yeah if you never need a a tutor let me know yeah dust it off but uh yeah piano is beautiful i mean piano and violin are both just very versatile instruments that just teach you general music theory Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, highly recommend it. Uh, well, I hated it at the time, but <laughs> now that I'm older, I can uh, appreciate kind of the the skills that you develop from doing it. Yeah, that's completely my um, strategy with my younger son. Is like he just doesn't really love it, but I'm forcing him to do it because I know later in his life he'll thank me for it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but uh, it's hard, you know. It's hard to teach kids to do things that like don't seem very fun in the moment. Yeah, but as you know having music in your life and especially when you can play an instrument um for me it was guitar uh played since i was 16 and like for so many times throughout the years it just helped me either just have fun or process you know when i was feeling bad or you know just sort of like it it was a great outlet so i I really um yeah i I encourage kids to to have that in their life as much as possible because i think it can really help especially as you're going through you know your teenage years when you know things aren't really quite clear on what what you're doing and where you're headed and how you might be feeling definitely yeah speaking of personal outlet like uh, i actually was part of a uh, not many people know this i was a part of a like a heavy metal band uh in like middle school and high school you're on the clarinet <laughs> i was actually a singer uh nice. yeah i i grew up uh, going to church and singing choir as well so um was it was a singer and also screamed uh nice. for like screamo music yeah all right, so what was the band called? What was the name? Uh, it was called Ephesus. Uh, it was like Christian metal. And okay. Ephesus is like a, um, like a town in uh, like near Damascus um, that you know Jesus was kind of passing through and there was like a parable about it. Uh, pretty small, but yeah, that was... <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, that was kind of the impetus for it. So yeah, Christian, Christian heavy metal was kind yeah, of our I niche. That. I love that. Um, have you heard of a band called King's X? No, I have not. What was that? Yeah, they, so I was into metal too. Um, and they they were sort of not really overtly Christian, but you know, you could definitely tell from some of their lyrics, but they were sort of more, uh, yeah, on the, the Christian side rather than say Slayer. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, cool. It's a balance the thread for sure. You want to, you know, have mainstream appeal with heavy metal fans who typically aren't very uh, pious, I'd say. No, no, I wouldn't say so. Um, so what were you thinking at that time? Like, did you have a plan for yourself or like, what was your path looking like, um, you know, as you're in a heavy metal band and, and studying and doing all that stuff as a teenager? I would say I didn't have too much of a plan. Um, my plan was to kind of execute on the like tasks and the milestones that were kind of set out in front of me 
whether it be, you know, from my parents, like getting good grades and eventually, you know, taking AP classes or doing other kind of extracurriculars and, and becoming kind of in the leadership positions for those. Um, or I'd just say like from a societal perspective, right? It's like get good grades, be popular, uh, stuff like that. Uh, I also played sports growing up. Um, I played, uh, I swam and I played volleyball. So it was all about, you know, being good at those two sports and, you know, being a captain for the team or, you know, winning the games uh, yeah. that needed to be won, what have you. So I didn't think too hard <laughs> as right. a kid too much. And in San Diego, volleyball is like, you know, kind of like, uh, it's almost a must have. Yeah. Yeah. Then water polo. Water polo is really big as well. Yeah. Um, but uh, I never really got into to water polo too much. It's the same season as, as volleyball. So I was kind of a odd one to do swimming yeah. uh, and then not do water polo with the rest of the team. And then you mentioned um, you went back to Chicago um, to go to Northwestern. Um, mm -hmm. What was, um, so what did you, what did you study there? Uh, I studied, uh, I studied math. Um, surprise. <laughs> uh, and, uh, I did a, I did a dual degree in, uh, in econ as well. Okay. Um, so yeah, going back to Chicago was, uh, was good, uh, to kind of, you know, reconnect with old friends that, uh, I kind of grew up with and, uh, also went to Northwestern and, um, you know, being in the cold and, uh, being kind of isolated from, from parents was helpful. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's an important part, I think, of college is just getting out on your own and trying to figure out how you can live um, by yourself. Yeah, Chicago's a great city, too. I mean, it's, a, it's definitely, I think, something we can appreciate more as an older, like, you know, as a college student or, or a young adult. Um, what was your path then? Like, what, what, where were you headed, like, with math? What did you think you were going to um, do when you graduated? I, I think I had, like, two ideas heading into university um one was that like i remember kind of like maybe junior year of high school um my dad was really kind of embedding into me that i should um be like a i don't even know the exact word he used for it but basically like an investment banker um and so uh that was kind of like ingrained to me to like okay like go you know get a prestigious job at um you know a bold bracket like goldman or what have you yeah and kind of just like go down that that um tried and true route um i had a kind of moment of deviation from that um i would say my sophomore year of college when I was kind of reflecting on all the things that brought me joy um, in high school and in college, and that was actually um, tutoring people. And so I was a tutor throughout high school when I was, you know, good at tutoring. So more, maybe more like junior, senior year, like post SAT, ACT madness. Um, and I kind of carried that on um, into tutoring for my classes and. Uh, freshman year of college and i just loved it i loved i loved kind of um you know helping folks grasp concepts and i really wanted to go into education but uh not so much as a as a tutor slash teacher slash educator but uh maybe more on kind of the builder perspective so like doing like education tech that was kind of a pivot right i 
I didn't want to do banking anymore. Um, I kind of wanted had I wanted like a greater goal in mind and and going to and, and going to ed tech. And I think you know I eventually did a little bit of that. I, I worked in ed tech company um, or an intern ed tech company rather, and uh, ultimately went into my first job um, out of college with the interest of doing education, but uh, you know somehow fell down the the finance slash crypto rabbit hole. Um, not surely after that. I need, we need to go back or maybe it's a little bit forward here, but I, one thing I, I, in my research on you that I, I found that was really interesting was that you co-founded Taproom, which was a beer, deli- <laughs> a beer delivery service. So that sounds like yeah. a bit of a pivot too. How did that come about? Yeah. You know, I think when you're in your twenties, you, you kind of want to, uh, just like experience what it's like to be a builder right um and kind of like take things from zero to one mm-hmm. and so one of the things i loved doing in college was just drinking beer <laughs> uh so me and my my friend uh we had the idea that like there was kind of a lack of really good um like craft beers uh that were available to to people on campus and so we made kind of like a craft beer delivery service this is when things like uh like delivery, everything as a delivery was getting really popular. So like, okay. you know, customized socks is delivery or, you know, personal hygiene products is delivery. Uh, so we kind of just like rode that wave and we got into a uh, incubator program at, at Northwestern um, called The Garage. And so we spent, you know, a good chunk of um, junior year and senior year kind of building that. That's great. And I'm sure you had to test and taste all the beers that you wanted to send to people to make sure they were good, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it was uh, definitely, there was a personal benefit to it as well. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Um, and then another thing, uh, so I guess then the pivot back to um, sort of more like out of ed tech into the financial world, um, I, I, I noticed that you spent some time at McKinsey. Was that sort of the first um big job in that world like the consulting world the financial world yeah um no i i i had a few internships before that um so i interned at uh this company called synchrony financial it's a spinoff of uh of ge um ge's financial arm and so they did a lot of uh like retail finance like analytics uh for um like personal spend and they did like personal loans and and uh and credit cards that are co-branded with stores like Sears and JCPenney. So that was kind of like my first internship, I guess. Okay. Um you know, just as someone that wanted to get some professional experience and you know wanted wanted some money as well uh during the summer. And so that was kind of my first uh internship and then afterwards I, I did my ed tech internship part-time uh during the year um and then i interviewed at mckinsey because i kind of had a realization after my ed tech internship where um, i wanted to basically tackle larger problems or problem problems that had larger scale to them mm-hmm. um and so instead of you know, helping out one school, and this is at my the ed tech startup I worked at, you know, helping one school kind of um, augment their curriculum with, uh, you know, kind of 
um, MOOCs essentially, like massive online uh, open courses. I'm actually not sure if that's the exact acronym for it, but um, you know, yeah, augmenting these classes, yeah, yeah uh, and and helping these students at like a you know twenty five thirty student per semester basis. Um, I wanted to tackle like national scale problems, uh, and you know, I knew that you know a lot of consulting firms that have dedicated education practices were doing just that, right? They would do kind of work in developing nations and work with the Department uh, of Finance, uh, sorry, Department of Education in order to um, actually run these pilots using, you know, education or optimizing the operations of some sort of national education program. And so that's what got me really excited to, to kind of apply to consulting in the first place. Forgive me if I'm, I'm wrong here, but I was reading how you described your, your time at McKinsey. And you, you noted that you got um, the United Airlines 1K status, uh, that you missed 20 plus birthdays and friend obligations, and that you had amassed five pairs of the same blue gingham button down shirt. So I'm, I'm assuming I kind of was dripping with sarcasm a little bit. So I'm assuming at, at the end there, it didn't, it wasn't really for you. Yeah, de definitely not. I mean, for, for many reasons that uh, I think may come across from uh, from my description of it, my time there. Um, but I think like to tie back to like the, the through line that we've been pulling at, um, I joined I joined McKinsey and kind of um, like got wound up into um, just kind of the, the bureaucracy of it where, you know, I wanted to do education work um, but when I joined, they saw that I had finance experience um, working at Synchrony, and I just generally had a you know finance friendly background with uh, with math and and economics uh, degree, and so they just staffed me on a lot of uh, banking projects, um, and uh, you know they, they the kind of um, statement that I got from the staffing department was that uh, you know you would do this for your first year. And then when you're a second year, when you have a bit more kind of agency over your staffing assignments, uh, then you could, uh, you know, get education uh, related engagements. But then I realized that a lot of people want to be staffed on, in, you know, the education kind of department. Uh, and there weren't exactly a lot of engagements. And so it became kind of a politicking thing, right? You had to be very friendly with uh, the partners and senior partners that were involved in those education deals. Um, and uh, you had to do a lot of like, you know, extra work for them, right? You had to write, write these letter of proposals for them. Uh, and and it, it all became very belabored, right? Uh, and, and, and taxing uh, for me to kind of keep up with the Joneses, so to speak, in, in, that, in that department. And I kind of fell into my, my little finance lane and was enjoying working with the people that I found there. Okay. Had, um, had you come across crypto at this point yet, or when did that um, hit your radar? Yeah, so I would say I, I, I had come across crypto. I'd known about crypto for a few years up until that point. Um, I found out about crypto in 2013, um, mainly as just, you know, dorm room conversation, mm -hmm. um, fresh, my freshman year at Northwestern. Uh, so it was kind of keeping tabs of, of Bitcoin and 
I eventually kept tabs of of Ethereum as well uh, when it came out and um, kind of was excited about it, but lost kind of faith after the DAO hack and after kind of the the hard fork of the network and figured it wasn't kind of prime time ready yet. So I was always kind of tangentially related, financially sort of invested into into those assets, but um, never super involved, I would say. Um, and I didn't get really involved until actually, um, I think it was my second or third, I think it was my second uh, engagement at McKinsey where I was working uh, on a project for a bank and um, you know, I was the youngest person in my team and our client actually just came up to our team room uh, and they asked, you know, who knows about crypto? And kind of all of them looked towards me and said, I, I think Jim knows. Uh, and so I kind of told them what I knew, not particularly much. They had follow-up questions and it was kind of on me to, you know, give them a response. Uh, I think in consulting, you're kind of in the mindset of, you know, helping out clients and uh, doing something that we at McKinsey call client coaching, which is like, you know, you kind of find someone who wants to, you know, uh, work with you more in, in intimately and deeply and, and irrespective of kind of what, what the assignment is, you, you just do it uh, because you want to kind of um, foster that relationship, right? Sure. Yeah. And so it was kind of just going more into it with him, um, kind of thinking about how this <laughs> really, really large and uh, established bank would actually think about uh, embedding cryptocurrency into it or how incumbents in the space leveraging crypto could usurp kind of the the market share of, of this incumbent. And um, yeah, yeah, that was that was kind of my my deeper kind of delve into into the subject matter. And, and I loved it. I'm impressed that you were around for the Dow hack. There's not too many people that I meet that were uh, experiencing that in real time. Um, and, and then so what about this deeper dive into crypto, like what, what kind of, um, what you said you had lost faith in it. Was there something that brought you back around? That is a good question. I would say just like the, honestly, the promise of like taking the ethos of Ethereum and, uh, like improving upon the technology. Right. And so some of the things that I was really excited about kind of in that second come around were the so-called Ethereum killers. Right. So like Cardano, mm -hmm. EOS, IOTA uh, were kind of the ones that come to mind for me, which is funny because, you know, flash forward five, six years later, they're not yeah. around anymore. How are they doing? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're, they're around, but. Um, but they you don't know, really have much activity, do they? Yeah, and Ethereum is still going strong, even after the 2021 Alt L1 narrative, and you know the next wave of ETH killers. Uh, right. Ethereum yeah, think, still holds strong. I think we're on our third uh, wave of ETH killers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so then that makes sense to me. Did you like kind of then marry your financial background uh, with your crypto interest, and in, is that how Ripple kind of came about? Was that a good uh, fit for you at that point? Yes, I think that was kind of my thinking on on why I wanted to go into Ripple. 
Well, let's just, um, for people who might not know, like, uh, just to set the stage, Ripple is a project uh, that is trying to use cryptocurrency as an alternative way to um, have correspondent banking. So if firms need to send money from the U.S. to Japan, for example, they could use, they could change, the, and they use their uh, own cryptocurrency called XRP. And you would change dollars into XRP, and then in Japan, they would change the XRP into yen, and you could make those payments. Um, don't think it's quite caught on the way that Brad Garlinghouse and, and some of the other folks at Ripple uh, might have hoped, but that's the idea there, um, just to kind of set the stage. And so uh, it, you are a product manager there, is that right, Jim? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, um, like, I think the best way to talk about how I ended up at Ripple is kind of going, um, like going chronologically after that, like initial moment in which the client asked me about crypto, and I kind of got deeper into it. Um, where essentially, you know, I started researching in my free time. Um, ended up speaking to other really crypto interested folks uh, at McKinsey and kind of participating in the research that that we were writing there, uh, you know, research in quotes, because it, it was very light research, uh, but I didn't realize it at the time. Um, it was kind of part of the initial formation of, of, a, of a dedicated crypto um, subgroup within within the firm. And uh, I think eventually after that, I realized that uh, I was kind of hitting the ceiling of what I could learn just purely from a research capacity. And I actually wanted to be uh, an operator. And so I wanted to work in crypto at the time. I didn't know too much about it outside of what I read from from articles and, you know, speaking about it with uh, these kind of uh, big financial institution clients uh, that we had at the firm. Um, so I only knew that, you know, I wanted to stay in San Francisco and there was only two big companies in San Francisco that uh, seemed legitimate to me Coinbase, in crypto. Coinbase exactly. being the other. Yeah. Exactly. And so uh, I had a kind of fork in the road where I could have worked at Coinbase, uh, but I ended up working at Ripple um, because I I thought that, um, you know, they were solving kind of a real use case, right, uh, for sending money across borders, for remittances and helping you know the layperson uh, kind of abstract away crypto and, and leverage it in, in, in the form of really quick uh, and cost effective remittances. And I felt like that was a much better mission than kind of building a trading venue for speculation uh, with mm -hmm. Coinbase. And so uh, that's why I decided to join uh, Ripple um, and, and uh, yeah, was there for a little bit less than two years. So being on the inside there at Ripple, what did you come away with? Did you did you come away thinking they had a good product? Or I, I think the thing about Ripple that's a huge challenge, maybe the number one challenge is just unseating the banks from the correspondent banking system because it's a huge moneymaker for them and um, they're very entrenched and a lot of banks have um, invested a lot of money uh, to have networks that in Southeast Asia or Africa or whatnot, I think, Last night had heard, if you want to move money into Africa, there's only a, like two or three banks that you can use. So they sort of have a stranglehold on it. Um, did, 
so I'm curious how you came away um, from from inside Ripple with with your thoughts on on what they're the problem that they're trying to solve. Yeah, I think my biggest takeaway coming from Ripple was that payments is a very entrenched um, ecosystem of many players, and I kind of knew this at, at McKinsey as well. Uh, but I didn't realize just kind of how entrenched some of those relationships in, the, in those processes are. And even if you have kind of a, you know, intuitive problem that you're trying to solve that you think crypto is good for, right? In this case, cross-border payments, right? Um, you know, correspondent banks take, you know, anywhere from up to three to five business days. They are incredibly rent sinking, right? They take anywhere from seven to 10%, if not more, depending on the pair on any given transaction. Um, it's something that you think crypto is kind of a no brainer for, right? Um, but uh, I think what we realized and what I've come to take away from in my time at Ripple was that um, there was kind of all sorts of ways to get around that um, through the traditional system whether it be some form of IOU, right? Some form of like lease on capital uh, for uh, good rates or whether, you know, the actual just technical integration is too complicated at this point to unwind and, and kind of bring in a clean sheet solution. And so I think to this day, right? Um, what is it like 15 years since the creation of the Bitcoin white paper that was built for, you know, P2P payments, uh, we still haven't seen crypto really take off for payments. And I think it's it's really because of that. Yeah. Um, and that's a tough problem. And I, I still think that it's it's the right problem to to go after in, in crypto amongst others. Um, but at the end of the day, people want fiat and they don't really care what's happening in between. You know, if I want to send USD to Euro, they don't really care what's happening in between. and. Uh, it's actually not as urgent or as dire of a user pain point than that I originally thought it was because of all those kind of entrenched relationships and systems. Okay. So just one last thing here. Um, of course, the SEC is suing um, Ripple. There's, it's a, quite a high profile case. Um, the SEC is alleging that XRP is a security and it, they didn't register it with the um, Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, and uh, so I think that lawsuit is sort of coming towards an end or the court case. Um, do you have any thoughts on that or any, uh, any, any opinion on, on um, who might come out on, uh, who, who might win that case? Um, not any that I think I can share at the moment, um, but it has been kind of as a outside party just viewing from the outside um a really monumental case to keep tabs on yeah. um just as a interested party in the broader crypto community and um i think the one thing that i could say broadly is that as a you know company that is working in crypto and is you know very open about doing business in the united states um, it's, it's a, it's a tough kind of road to navigate down, uh, I would say, uh, but there's a lot of benefits to, to being unabashedly, you know, American based and, 
um, you know, you got to kind of go through the, the ambiguity of kind of the regulatory space right now in order to reap those benefits. Yeah, I, I guess I'm of two minds of this. And, and I think previously, I thought this was a slam dunk because it just seemed like XRP was basically a security, you know, just had all the hallmarks of a security. Um, and we won't get into that. But then more recently, as I've watched the SEC go about, you know, enforcement actions and the, the way that they're approaching crypto under Chairman Gary Gensler, you know, I'm not sure I want them to get a win under their belt because I don't think they're going about it in the right way. Um, so it, I think it's it's a tricky one. And I do know that Ripple uh, at, at least has um, more money than God almost. So that they've got a very well-funded case um, against the government in this, but it will be very interesting to see how that uh, eventually plays out. Um, so, and then, did you move from the, from Ripple down to Ave? No, I um, I I had another job uh, in between that, uh, and so uh, I left Ripple uh, a little bit after DeFi summer, and was like absolutely convinced that um, I wanted to build on Ethereum, mm -hmm. just after seeing kind of just the magic happen with DeFi summer and the narratives that were taking hold with. Uh, you know, money Legos and composable finance and kind of the open nature of all these primitives that are being built. And I wanted to participate in that. Um, funny enough, I, I kind of wanted to predict the next, uh, the next important technology that needed to be built. Uh, and so I ended up joining an NFT company called Unstoppable Domains uh, as a product manager there as well. Uh, and, and then my bet was that, uh, you know, NFTs were going to be super important, which played out, I would say. Uh, but I think Unstoppable Domains, which is similar to ENS, Ethereum name service, uh, was that you would have NFTs as, as usernames, right? Okay. And so my, my thinking was NFTs will be important. What is the most important uh, NFT? It's probably going to be names, right? If, if people are going to spend all this time in the metaverse. Everyone <laughs> needs a name, sure. right? Um, they don't necessarily need, you know, images or art to collect or what have you, right? That was becoming somewhat popular in, in late 2020 with, uh, with Nifty Gateway and, and everything. Um, but uh, I would say I was somewhat right, but not completely right. Uh, but it was, it was fun to kind of build uh, up into the, the craziness of, uh, of JPEG Summer. Yeah. Well, I, I loved... Um on your resume, the Abe, uh, you were project manager for experiments. So I just, uh, mm -hmm. I, there's something about that that just uh, made me laugh. Um, Cause it sounds like, Hey, let's, let's try an experiment this week. And then, Oh, that didn't work. Let's, let's try something else next week. It sounds like uh, there's a bit of whimsy in it, but what, what were you doing for them um, in the experiments realm? Yeah. So it was a really kind of unique and rewarding role and super intellectually stimulating essentially um you know i got this role because i was having a conversation with with stani um about kind of what my dream role would be and i was kind of like i was in a state in which so many things were happening in crypto that were so fascinating to me whether it be DeFi or NFTs, social tokens, slash, you know, the creator economy, slash passion economy, 
DAOs were were becoming really big as well, decentralized science. And so I was kind of spending a lot of my time in a lot of places, right? Researching a lot of things, talking about a lot of things. Uh, and I didn't really want to kind of focus on one specific thing. And so I was kind of like articulating that to him, uh, that that was kind of my dream role was to have that kind of wide mandate and do a lot of, but still build, right? Do a lot of kind of zero to ones and, and still learn as a builder from that perspective. Um, and so we co-created this role called Head of Experiments. I led an experiment lab uh, at Ave called Newt. And uh, it's basically a combination of like internal research as well as external proof of concepts. And so it's more of like a funnel, right? Like we would research a lot of different topics that were really relevant to the broader Ave ecosystem. And then the things that were kind of above the bar for us, we would dedicate uh, kind of our product development resources in order to to bring them to life. Okay. Um, and so definitely research a lot of really kind of interesting things, which in, I would say, 2021 were still pretty nascent, uh, but became really relevant over time. Things like, um, you know, ZK uh, for privacy, um, for privacy preserving deposits, MEV recapture. Uh, within the protocol, uh, things around on-chain IP uh, for NFTs, and um, a few other things like uh, identity primitives for under-collateralized lending. So definitely a lot of uh, a lot of thinking <laughs> that I had yeah. my uh, my year and a half there. And did you eventually get around to um, cross-chain bridges at this point? Yes, um, definitely spent time thinking about cross-chain bridges uh, while I was at Aave. It came mainly from um, the relaunch or the design and the eventual launch of Aave v3, which I'm not sure if you're familiar, but Aave v3 has a feature called Portals, uh, which essentially allows for cross-chain lending. Okay. Right. So you have. Let's um. Mm -hmm. First of all, let's just like kind of break it down and and tell people what um what a cross-chain bridge is and why it's important yeah definitely um so you know i think the high level need for a bridge is essentially thinking about two different environments that need some sort of connector and so not too dissimilar to you know how a bridge might connect two different land masses uh, in in the real world uh, that's kind of how a bridge functions uh, within uh, crypto as well and so why are there different land masses is, is probably a, a good question. Um, but the reality is that, and I think we've kind of seen this play out in the past few years, is that there really isn't going to be one home for all the different applications that people are building and using. There's going to be multiple homes that have multiple uses, right? And so Alt-L1s Alt were kind of a, a good example of that, right? You had Solana and Polygon and Avalanche kind of come out in 2021 or become popular rather. Um, and then people need kind of ways in which they can actually move assets or move their accounts and just generally communicate between those two different things. Um, but the issue is that, you know, when these environments and these blockchains were created, uh, they weren't actually thinking about what communication between them would look like. And so bridges can kind of became that technology that allowed for the connection um, between these kind of two blockchains so that value and information and general messages can be kind of moved between one another. And so um, the why is basically because, you know, the world will be multi-chain, there will be 
many different blockchains that people are interacting with. That's just kind of a foregone conclusion, right? We can't really uh, unwind that uh, fact that's been playing out over the past few years. And so what we can do is actually build very scalable and, and safe um, you know, technologies in order to actually connect those pieces together and allow users to really easily interact between all of them. Um, yeah. you know. and, and again, at a high level, what typically, or a, a simplified version of what happens is you, um, because you can't move Ethereum to like another blockchain, uh, but you, you can deposit your Ethereum into a bridge contract and then you'll get a wrapped token right that that represents that a same amount of mm-hmm. the crypto that is on the second bridge or on the second blockchain that you want to access so um it, it it's not like you're moving your assets directly it's sort of like here i'm going to put my my eth in a in an account and I, that's my collateral and then i'm going to get that same amount of money to use on the second blockchain whatever it might be um but that i think has led to some issues where there have been hacks and and software bugs that have led to um, quite a, quite a lot of money getting lost in these um, in, in bridges. Um, so, going back to like the risk management stuff that we were talking about earlier, how are you thinking about that with Catalyst? And is that um, the paper you you wrote on uh, Mirror? And you you had you know had a great graphic in there that two and a half billion dollars was lost in bridge hacks last year alone. Um, so it seems like, you know, that's a, that's a, a significant hurdle um, for the industry. So how are you how are you thinking about that? Yeah, definitely. I would say though the mechanism that you kind of outline, right? This like wrapping of assets and then minting of a of a synthetic asset is uh, was kind of like a V one implementation of actually connecting the you know value of these disparate blockchains together uh and you know as, as we saw this play out uh, if you have one area in which you're basically holding all of this money and then um you have kind of a, another contract that is minting kind of not real money but you hope it's backed one-to-one um that uh, is definitely opening up um it's a mechanism that opens itself up to attacks, right? Yeah. Um, because you have, you know, as we've seen, hundreds of millions of dollars, somewhere, sometimes upwards to $700, $800 million locked into one single contract. And so that's kind of uh, the biggest bug bounty uh, and really sure. big kind of um, attack vector for, for any sort of uh, hacker exploiter, right? And so we've seen kind of a myriad of ways in which this has been attacked. Um, and uh, and I definitely don't think that this is a sustainable solution for this space because we do need safe and sustainable kind of technological primitives in order to connect these pieces together, or else we're essentially risking just terrible user experience, which you know will not lead to mass adoption and will not lead to kind of healthy trade uh, between these blockchains, right? Kind of similar to that uh, yeah. more IRL analogy I was making earlier. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I think the, the future is definitely multi-chain. I don't think there's going to be just one. Um, so this is a very important topic. Um, but what, what, So what is the thinking more recently about bridging and rather than you know, putting $700 million in a smart contract? Like, uh, what's, where are we now on, on the thinking of, of how to do this more safely that doesn't create this huge flashing sign for hackers? 
Yeah, so I'd say there's probably three different um, approaches to isolate and mitigate the risk of, of actually moving cross-chain. Um, all three of these, by the way, are, are things that um, I'm personally kind of implementing into Catalyst, which is uh, my new project. I know you, you kind of asked that earlier, so just kind of wanted to revisit that question. Yeah. Um, but the first piece is essentially um, providing more secure verification mechanisms for actually moving value cross-chain. And so every single, not every single, but the vast majority of you know exploits that we, we've seen the past year and a half uh, as it pertains to bridges um, basically came from um, mechanisms that rely on um, certain off-chain parties or just, you know, certain institutions in order to verify a transaction. And so all that to be said, we're essentially uh, not inheriting the security of blockchains when you're actually moving money from one chain to another, but you're essentially relying on this trusted committee of, you know, anywhere from, it used to be as low as five, but now it's more like nine to 15 companies. Uh, that are essentially running their own um, like nodes of these blockchains and verifying these messages, right? And so... So you're getting into the central point of failure problem that blockchain is supposed to um, alleviate. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you can also think of it as like um, a lot of these blockchains have built up over the years these large treasuries of sorts, like large stake pools that basically guarantee um, the safety of transactions happening on these blockchains through uh, economic security, right? Ethereum has, I don't know the number top of my head, um, but I think it's like 50, maybe $100 billion uh, a stake in its protocol. And so it's pretty secure in that regard, right? Uh, but when you're relying on a committee of you know 10 um, institutions, well, how do these institutions guarantee that they're not going to um, actually lie about the transactions? It's because they also have to put up money, right? But they're not going to put up $100 billion of money, right? They likely don't have that much money. They can probably put up a couple million dollars of money. But then you realize that if there's more than a couple million dollars that are being transferred, it becomes an economic incentive for these you know, committee members to actually just take that money and, you know, give up the stake that they've put into the system. And yeah. so it's not very scalable. Yeah, again, you, in, in crypto, you shouldn't be trusting anyone. You don't need to, to be trusting, right? If you have a blockchain that is yeah. there. So yeah. it sounds like Catalyst is working on on-chain solutions. Yes, absolutely. We're doing something called native verification, uh, which essentially means there's two blockchains that are um, validating the transactions of one another. Uh, and so we're not trusting kind of a, a intermediary party uh, in order to uh, in order to validate transactions. And so that's something that uh, the space calls trust minimization um, because you're inheriting the trust properties of just the two chains that you're interacting with, and not a, a kind of like an additional third chain or an additional trusted committee. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So, so tell us more about Catalyst. What are you hoping to achieve? Uh, and and what's the? I mean, you've you've been out, we've been outlining some of the problems here, but um, what was the kind of the impetus for you to to jump into this? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, you know, we kind of been laying the stage of all the different 
um, problems that I've kind of seen from the V1 solutions of the cross-chain space. Um, you know, I think quickly just talking about uh, the last two pieces I was, that I was saying um, that kind of um, allow for different approaches to alleviate the exploit risk. Another one is kind of the isolation of capital. So you don't have all the capital that lives on one contract. It's actually spread out between hundreds of contracts. So it kind of isolates the exploit risk if something does get kind of compromised. Mm -hmm. um, and the last piece is actually um, just using native assets. And so no sense of kind of wrapping an asset and then minting another asset in which you kind of have to trust this kind of mechanism in order to make sure that the, all these synthetic assets are backed one-to-one -one with real assets. Um, you can just move real assets, right? And so real ETH is actually swapped for real Matic on Polygon, for example. Um, and that kind of sets the stage, I think, for all the things that I want to accomplish with, with Catalyst. You know, I've been in the space for quite some time now. I've seen kind of all the different approaches uh, that have been kind of taken from a, from a DeFi and from a cross-chain perspective and kind of applied it to Catalyst. And so it's essentially a cross-chain uh, value transfer mechanism that does exactly that, right? It's like we're doing native verification. We have isolated risk into hundreds of different pools. And all these different pools have native assets, no sort of synthetic or wrapped asset. And so uh, in order to facilitate cross-chain swaps. And so, again, trying to mitigate all that risk that we've seen uh, from a first principles perspective. and. I do think this is going to be kind of a, a safer um, primitive that people can rely on uh, and kind of unlock more of that global trade that I want to see between these uh, multi-chain environments. Yeah, that's great. And where are you guys in, in the terms of the startup, you know, in Catalyst? Like, uh, are, are you live or what, uh, where are you in the whole development process? Um, we're not live yet. But uh, more details will definitely come out on the timing of that. Uh, as of right now, we're aiming for a testnet launch um, this summer, uh, and then a mainnet launch uh, sometime after that, maybe in the, the fall or winter of this year. Okay, great. And then I just wondered, I mean, forgive me for saying, but it, it, sometimes I feel like bridges uh, feel like in the larger crypto world, like a step 10. And we're still, I think, struggling sometimes with step two and three um, to get things right and to have the right security to sort of get people onboarded and, and to make crypto more um, user-friendly. Uh, I think those are challenges that need to be um, figured out. And then, and then bridging is kind of a little bit down the road. Or how, do you, how do you feel about that? I definitely can see where you have that sentiment. Right. There's a lot of foundational things that still need to be sorted out in, in crypto broadly and kind of bridges add a lot of complexity to that. Uh, I'm actually of a different camp where I think that bridges um, are actually kind of the solution to some of those um, problems that we're seeing. Right. And so, you know, to go to your analogy, bridging may seem like step 10, but once you kind of peer underneath the hood, you do realize it's kind of like a step one and a half. Um, because it really unlocks a lot of the the problems that or solutions that we're trying to achieve, um, and so I know you mentioned like UX, for example, um, or just kind of like general general accessibility uh, to to mainstream audiences. Um, I do think bridges are super important for that because um, you know right now I think there are a lot of inherent things that are 
hard about crypto that you can't really um, abstract, abstract away from a user experience perspective. Things like paying with gas and signing transactions. Um, but with the creation of kind of a new blockchain, um, right, that kind of natively solves for all those different things, uh, you can have an instance in which, you know, all the users actually interacting with this brand new blockchain, um, but all the kind of underlying security and all the assets and things that people really care about uh, still live on Ethereum. So you're kind of like remote controlling it, right? Mm -hmm. And so how does that remote controlling work? It's It's through bridges. And so I definitely think that bridges are kind of a underlying infrastructure that allows for the enablement of all the things that we want to achieve in crypto from a UX and, and, and kind of beyond. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. So Jim, thank you so much for all your time and, and for sharing your story with us and, and educating um, us on bridges. And I know you said that, that Catalyst is uh, hoping for testnet in the summer, but if folks want to get involved or, or check you out, um, let them know where they can find you. Yeah, of course. Uh, you, you know, anyone could, ping me on, on Twitter. I love to kind of have conversations there. Uh, my handle is at 0xjim, so 0xjim. Uh, and if you want to follow Catalyst as well, we'll have some announcements uh, even before Testnet. Uh, and then that is Catalyst AMM uh, on Twitter. So yeah, Jim, thanks again. I really appreciate your time and uh, good luck with Catalyst and everything going forward. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for the, the convos on, on my childhood. It's cool to unpack all the, all the through lines that I haven't thought about for quite some time. Yeah, yeah, I love doing that. It's always uh, usually leads to interesting conversations. So thanks for being willing to, uh, to dive back in. Yeah, of course. Thank you again. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget to rate and follow this show on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Decent People is a production of Decentral Media. It is produced by Matt Bogart with music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Imes. 